This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Carl, St. Louis, Missouri, January 2008. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 4, Chapter 5. Hail, mildly pleasing solitude, companion of the wise and good. This is the balmy breath of morn, just as the dew-bend rose is born. But chief when evening scenes decay, and the faint landscape swims away, thine is the doubtful, soft declined, and that best hour of musing thine. Thompson Emily's injunctions to Annette to be silent on the subject of her terror were ineffectual, and the occurrence of the preceding night spread such alarm among the servants, who now all affirmed that they had frequently heard unaccountable noises in the chateau, that a report soon reached the Count, of the north side of the castle being haunted. He treated this at first with ridicule, but, perceiving that it was productive of serious evil, in the confusion it occasioned among his household, he forbade any person to repeat it on pain of punishment. The arrival of a party of his friends soon withdrew his thoughts entirely from this subject, and his servants now had little leisure to brood over it, except, indeed, in the evenings after supper, when they all assembled in their hall, and related stories of ghosts, till they feared to look round the room started if the echo of a closing door murmured along the passage, and refused to go singly to any part of the castle. On these occasions Annette made a distinguished figure, when she told not only of all the wonders she had witnessed, but of all that she had imagined in the castle of Udolpho, with the story of strange disappearance of Signora Laurentini. She made no trifling impression on the mind of her attentive auditors. Her suspicions concerning Montoni she would also have freely disclosed, and had not Ludovico, who was now in the service of the Count, prudently checked her loquacity, whenever it pointed to that subject. Among the visitors at the chateau was the Baron de Saint-Foix, an old friend of the Count, and his son, the Chevalier Saint-Foix, a sensible and amiable young man, who, having in the preceding year seen the Lady Blanche at Paris, had become her declared admirer. The friendship which the Count had long entertained for his father, and the equality of their circumstances, made him secretly approve of the connections, but, thinking his daughter at this time too young to fix her choice for life, and wishing to prove the sincerity and strength of the Chevalier's attachment, he then rejected his suit, though without forbidding his future hope. This young man now came, with the baron, his father, to claim the reward of a steady affection, a claim which the Count admitted, and which Blanche did not reject. While these visitors were at the chateau, it became a scene of gaiety and splendor. The pavilion in the woods was fitted up and frequented, in the fine evenings, as a supper-room, when the hour usually concluded with a concert, at which the Count and Countess, who were scientific performers, and the Chevaliers, Henri and Saint-Foix, with the Lady Blanche and Emily, whose voices and fine taste compensated for the want of more skilful execution, usually assisted. Several of the Count's servants performed on horns and other instruments, some of which, placed at a little distance among the woods, spoke in sweet response to the harmony that proceeded from the pavilion. At any other period these parties would have been delightful to Emily, 
but her spirits were now oppressed with the melancholy, which she perceived that no kind of what is called amusement had power to dissipate, and which the tender and frequently pathetic melody of these concerts sometimes increased to a very painful degree. She was particularly fond of walking in the woods that hung on a promontory overlooking the sea. Their luxuriant shade was soothing to her pensive mind, and, in the partial views which they afforded of the Mediterranean, with its winding shores and passing sails, tranquil beauty was united with grandeur. The paths were rude and frequently overgrown with vegetation, but their tasteful owner would suffer little to be done to them and scarcely a single branch to be lopped from the venerable trees. On an eminence, in one of the most sequestered parts of these woods, was a rustic seat, formed of the trunk of a decayed oak, which had once been a noble tree, and of which many lofty branches still flourished, united with beech and pines to overcanopy the spot. Beneath their deep umbrage, the eye passed over the tops of other woods to the Mediterranean, and to the left, through an opening, was seen a ruined watch-tower, standing on a point of rock near the sea, and rising from among the tufted foliage. Hither Emily often came alone in the silence of the evening, and, soothed by the scenery and by the faint murmur that rose from the waves, would sit, till darkness obliged her to return to the chateau. Frequently also she visited the watch-tower, which commanded the entire prospect, and, when she leaned against its broken walls, and thought of Valancourt, she not once imagined what was so true, that this tower had been almost as frequently his resort as her own, since his estrangement from the neighboring chateau. One evening she lingered here to a late hour. She had sat on the steps of the building, watching, in tranquil melancholy, the gradual effect of evening over the extensive prospect, till the grey waters of the Mediterranean and the massy woods were almost the only features of the scene that remained visible, when, as she gazed alternately on these, and on the mild blue of the heavens where the first pale star of evening appeared, she personified the hour in the following lines. Song of the Evening Hour Last of the hours that track the fading day, I move along the realms of twilight air, and hear remote the choral song decay of sister nymphs who dance round his car. Then, as I follow through the azure void, his partial splendor from my straining eye sinks in the depths of space my only guide, his faint ray dawning on the farthest sky. Save that sweet, lingering strain of gayer hours, whose close my voice prolongs in dying notes, while mortals on the green earth own its powers, as downward on the evening gale it floats. When fades along the west the sun's last beam, as weary to the nether world he goes, and mountain summits catch the purple gleam, and slumbering ocean faint and fainter glows. Silent upon the globe's broad shade I steal, and o'er its dry turf shed the cooling dews, and every favored herb and flower did heal, and all their fragrance on the air diffuse. Where'er I move, a tranquil pleasure reigns, o'er all the scene the dusky tints I send, that forests wild and mountains stretching plains, and peopled towns in soft confusion blend. Wide o'er the earth I waft the freshening wind, low breathing through the woods and twilight veil, 
in whispers soft that woo the pensive mind of him who loves my lonely steps to hail. His tender oaten reed I watch to hear, stealing its sweetness or some plaining rill, or soothing ocean's wave when storms are near, or swelling in the breeze from distant hill. I wake the fairy elves who shun the light, when from their blossoms' beds they slyly peep, and spy my pale star leading on the night, forth to their games and revelry they leap. Send all the prisoned sweets abroad in air, that with them slumbered in the flowered's cell. Then to the shores and moonlight brooks repair, till the high larks their matin carol swell. The wood-nymphs hail my airs in tempered shade, with ditties soft and light sportive dance. On river margin of some bowery glade, they stretch their fresh buds as my steps advance. But swift I pass and distant regions trace, for moonbeams silver all the eastern cloud, and day's last crimson vestige fades apace. Down the steep west I fly from midnight's shroud. The moon was now rising out of the sea. She watched its gradual progress, the extending line of radiance it threw upon the waters, the sparkling oars, the sail faintly silvered, and the wood-tops and the battlements of the watch-tower, at whose foot she was sitting, just tinted with the rays. Emily's spirits were in harmony with this scene. As she sat meditating, sounds stole by her in the air, which she immediately knew to be the music and the voice she had formerly heard at midnight, and the emotion of awe which she felt was not unmixed with terror when she considered her remote and lonely situation. The sounds drew nearer. She would have risen to leave the place, but they seemed to come from the way she must have taken toward the chateau, and she awaited the event in trembling expectation. The sounds continued to approach for some time, and then ceased. Emily sat listening, gazing and unable to move, when she saw a figure emerge from the shade of the woods and pass along the bank, at some little distance before her. It went swiftly, and her spirits were so overcome with awe that, though she saw, she did not much observe it. Having left the spot with a resolution never again to visit it alone at so late an hour, she began to approach the chateau when she heard voices calling her from the part of the wood which was nearest to it. They were the shouts of the Count's servants, who were sent to search for her, and when she entered the supper-room, where he sat with Henri and Blanche, he gently reproached her with a look which she blushed to have deserved. This little occurrence deeply impressed her mind, and, when she withdrew to her own room, it recalled so forcibly the circumstances she had witnessed a few nights before, that she had scarcely courage to remain alone. She watched to a late hour when, no sound having renewed her fears, she at length sunk to repose. But this was of short continuance, for she was disturbed by a loud and unusual noise that seemed to come from the gallery, into which her chamber opened. Groans were distinctly heard, and, immediately after, a dead weight fell against the door, with a violence that threatened to burst it open. She called loudly to know who was there, but received no answer, though, at intervals, she still thought she heard something like a low moaning. Fear deprived her of the power to move, 
Soon after, she heard footsteps in a remote part of the gallery, and as they approached, she called more loudly than before, till the steps paused at her door. She then distinguished the voices of several of the servants, who seemed too much engaged by some circumstance without, to attend to her calls, but... Annette, soon after entering the room for water, Emily understood that one of the maids had fainted, whom she immediately desired them to bring into her room, where she assisted to restore her. When this girl had recovered her speech, she affirmed that, as she was passing up the back staircase in the way to her chamber, she had seen an apparition on the second landing-place. She held the lamp low, she said, that she might pick her way, several of the stairs being infirm and even decayed, and it was upon raising her eyes that she saw this appearance. It stood for a moment in the corner of the landing-place, which she was approaching, and then, gliding up the stairs, vanished at the door of the apartment that had been lately opened. She heard afterwards a hollow sound. "'Then the devil has got a key to that apartment,' said Dorothy." "'for it could be nobody but he. "'I locked the door myself.' "'The girl, springing down the stairs "'and passing up the great staircase, "'had run with a faint scream "'until she reached the gallery "'where she fell, groaning at Emily's door. "'Gently chiding her for the alarm she had occasioned, "'Emily tried to make her ashamed of her fears, "'but the girl persisted in saying "'that she had seen an apparition "'till she went to her own room.' whither she was accompanied by all the servants present, except Dorothy, who, at Emily's request, remained with her during the night. Emily was perplexed, and Dorothy was terrified, and mentioned many occurrences of former times, which had long since confirmed her superstitions. Among these, according to her belief, she had once witnessed an appearance, like that just described, and on the very same spot, and it was the remembrance of it that had made her pause when she was going to ascend the stairs with Emily, and which had increased her reluctance to open the north apartments. Whatever might be Emily's opinions, she did not disclose them, but listened attentively to all that Dorothy communicated, which occasioned her much thought and perplexity. From this night the terror of the servants increased to such an excess that several of them determined to leave the chateau, and requested their discharge of the Count, who, if he had any faith in the subject of their alarm, thought proper to dissemble it, and, anxious to avoid the inconvenience that threatened him, employed ridicule and then argument to convince them they had nothing to apprehend from supernatural agency. But fear had rendered their minds inaccessible to reason, and it was now that Ludovico proved at once his courage and his gratitude for the kindness he had received from the Count, by offering to watch during a night in this suite of the rooms reputed to be haunted. He feared, he said, no spirits, and if the thing of human form appeared, he would prove that he dreaded that as little. The Count paused upon the offer, while the servants who heard it looked upon one another in doubt and amazement, and Annette, terrified for the safety of Ludovico, employed tears and entreaties to dissuade him from his purpose. "'You are a bold fellow,' said the Count, smiling. "'Think well of what you are going to encounter before you finally determine upon it. However, if you persevere in your resolution, I will accept your offer, and your intrepidity shall not go unrewarded.' "'I desire no reward, Your Excellenza,' replied Ludovico, "'but your approbation. 
Your Excellenza has been sufficiently good to me already, but I wish to have arms that I may be equal to my enemy if he should appear. Your sword cannot defend you against a ghost, replied the Count, throwing a glance of irony upon the other servants. Neither can bars or bolts, for a spirit, you know, can glide through a keyhole as easily as through a door. Give me a sword, my lord Count, said Ludovico, and I will lay all the spirits that shall attack me in the Red Sea. Well, said the Count, you shall have a sword, and good cheer, too, and your brave comrades here will, perhaps, have courage enough to remain another night in the chateau, since your boldness will certainly, for this night at least, confine all the malice of the spectre to yourself. Curiosity now struggled with fear in the minds of several of his fellow-servants, and at length they resolved to await the event of Ludovico's rashness. Emily was surprised and concerned when she heard of his intention, and was frequently inclined to mention what she had witnessed in the north apartments to the Count, for she could not entirely divest herself of fears for Ludovico's safety, though her reason represented these to be absurd. The necessity, however, of concealing the secret with which Dorothy had entrusted her, and which must have been mentioned, with the late occurrence, an excuse for her having so privately visited the North Apartments, kept her entirely silent on the subject of her apprehension, and she tried only to soothe Annette, who held that Ludovico was certainly to be destroyed, and who was much less affected by Emily's consolatory efforts than by the manner of old Dorothy, who often, as she exclaimed Ludovico, sighed and threw up her eyes to heaven. End of Volume 4, Chapter 5